0: Today on Peace Talks Radio, we explore the growing practice of restorative justice. Different from the adversarial punitive-based criminal justice system that some say just continues a cycle of violence and personal destruction. Restorative justice brings all parties together in a circle to hear what happened. Offenders and victims work out what harm was done and what can be done to restore both sides of the community itself.
1: Everybody's voice in the circle matters. What happens is you see the arising of group wisdom, Because it's not just one person's perspective.
0: We'll hear about a couple of programs working with primarily youth in both Taos, New Mexico, and West Oakland, California, with some hopeful results. We went down in suspensions 85%. Not only did we not
2: suspend kids for frivolous reasons, kids stopped doing things that would uh,
0: cause them to get suspended. Restorative Justice Programs, today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today, with the help of co-host Carol Boss and our guests, we'll be taking a look at what are known as restorative justice programs that attempt to do more than punish offenders who have committed crimes or wronged others. Restorative justice programs often bring offenders, victims, family members, and other stakeholders in the society together to work through what happened, to identify the harm done, and together to work out appropriate punishment and possible restitution. There have been examples of restorative justice-style practices throughout history, and you'll hear from some of our guests. Many cite the Talking Circle model practiced by First Nation and Native American communities as an inspiration for today's restorative justice programs. Maybe the most well-known application of restorative justice practices in recent history has been the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, assembled in the mid-1990s in the aftermath of the abolition of apartheid. Although there were critics of the commission, which granted amnesty to about one in ten offenders who went through the process, generally the TRC was thought of as successful in promoting honesty and healing in the country. But parts of the restorative justice practices have drawn criticism over the years. Some say it trivializes crime, doesn't reduce recidivism, and doesn't do as much to restore and repair as it claims. Even those working in the field of restorative justice admit that it's a work in progress. But as an addendum to what they see as a largely flawed criminal justice system, the practitioners of restorative justice are confident that it's a model worth exploring. We explore two programs on today's show, Later, one that works with youth in Oakland, California, and first that for some years has been employed in Taos County in New Mexico, beginning with the case of Chris Weathers. In 2001, I was convicted of um, aggravated
3: DUI and vehicular homicide. Um, I was not a juvenile; I was about 26 years old, at 27 at the time. I made a a bad decision to get behind the wheel after I'd been drinking. Uh, I was with. uh, my younger brother and um, <clears throat> there were two uh, young girls in the back seat of, uh, we were driving a, a small Ford Bronco. Um, I attempted to pass a vehicle near Taos Canyon, didn't realize that the car was turning left and um, we clipped the left front corner of that vehicle. Uh, we rolled um, several times the, from the point of impact that vehicle traveled um, uh, hundreds of yards. We actually landed in the driveway of the state police office um, when When the vehicle came to arrest, and uh everybody except for me um was ejected from the vehicle I found my my younger brother about fifty yards in front of the car. all but one of his ribs were broken he was um He was in pretty bad shape one young girl that that um the accident claimed her life was was beaten to death by a floor jack uh, when we rolled. The other young girl that was in the vehicle with us suffered a broken collarbone and some broken teeth.
4: When after the accident, did you realize the full extent of what had happened?
3: Oh, boy. I, I don't know if I um, still have a, a real clear picture of the full extent of what happened, Carol. I uh, I was actually released from jail about 3 o'clock in the morning, um, and then— uh, Went to Albuquerque with my family, where my brother and uh, the girl that that was, you know, to lose her life in the accident were both at the at uh, UNM Hospital, and um, four
0: days later she passed away. The girl who died was seventeen-year-old Shori Gomez of Taos Pueblo, then a senior at Taos High School. Actually, the next day, uh,
3: the the judges, the DA here, issued a warrant for my arrest, so I went and turned myself in in Albuquerque. And, um, you know, I was in, uh, Santa Fe County jail for a period of time. I didn't have contact with anybody. Uh, I didn't know, I, I knew that the, the the one female passenger had died. I didn't know if my brother was alive or dead. Uh, I was released on an ankle bracelet, um, about three, four months later and, uh, waited, uh, a pretrial release. And, uh, it was the first, uh, criminal case that uh, restorative justice process took place in in Taos.
4: Rose, tell us what
1: is restorative justice?
0: Rose Gordon is a restorative justice facilitator for juveniles in Taos County.
1: Restorative justice is a process that allows victims and those who have harmed them to gather in the same room together in real time. Restorative justice circles identify the harms that were done and identify ways to repair the harm and ensure the community of its safety. And it's an old model that's been used by indigenous peoples for a long time, and in the last 20 years or so has become more and more widespread globally. The
4: basic principles that you talked about, Rose, as to what restorative justice is, those are in a sense, really diametrically opposed to what our criminal justice system is right now, which uh, is what law was broken, who broke it, what punishment is warranted. Mm-hmm. So it really represents a shift in
1: how we think about justice. Absolutely. I think it it represents a shift and it also represents an enhancement. So that restorative justice was really um designed in terms of our western culture to um to give victims an opportunity to directly be in dialogue with the person who's who's committed an offense against them and to have a voice in identifying the harms in a very personal way and then to actually have the opportunity to name the harm and how they want it repaired as opposed to the criminal justice system where It's lawyers and judges and plea bargaining that determines what the punishment will be. This is about repair. It's the
4: circle process that also includes their families and their victims. Absolutely. As well as what you call affected community.
1: Uh huh. Let's talk about the circle and and how it works. Once we get a referral, our first process is called a pre conference. And that's an essential foundation for having a restorative justice circle. So it's about an hour and a half where I meet with a youth offender and at least one of his parents or guardians and get an idea of who they are, get their um, story about the offense and what happened, and start to establish trust with them, which involves some humor as well so that we're comfortable together. And I also have a pre-conference with the victims if they're willing. Um, Then we move into the circle, which involves the offender and their family and the victim and their family or a co-offender. The probation officers are there. Sometimes counselors are there or occasionally a lawyer is present. Um, and police officers, either town police or state police, if we feel that the particular situation calls for that. And in that circle, we go through a process of everyone having an opportunity to identify what harm was done and how it can be repaired. When many of us
4: grew up, it was just deemed that fighting is bad. We were told to just shake hands and make up. And there was very little about speaking about the hurt. So it sounds like restorative justice is really about giving voice and using our voices and really understanding each other's experience.
1: Absolutely about that. Um, Everybody's voice in the circle matters. And what we used to say about circles was that what happens is you see the arising of group wisdom. Because it's not just one person's perspective of what happened, but it's it's a larger picture created a, through many perspectives, and you get a much bigger picture. And there's no telling which one of those perspectives, which one of those voices is going to strike home for somebody and make a difference in their life.
4: One thing, before they get to um, be in the circle so they're they're at the point where they're not disputing what they've done.
1: Uh there's usual usually a little disputing and that's the other reason that the pre-conference is so important, Carol, is that um we can have a conversation about the pieces of what they did that that they don't really want to take full responsibility for, and part of my job as I see it, and i will be very blunt with them and say i'm going to call you on this um is for them to really be accountable but people don't always start off being fully accountable none of us do and but they have to they can't be in the process of going to court and denying what they've done and if they were really denying what they had done and i've only had that happen once I won't do a circle because I won't expose somebody who's been the victim of a, of an offense. I won't expose them to somebody who has no accountability for their actions because that would be harmful to the victim. You know, one of the challenges of restorative justice is that victims aren't mandated to attend, so they don't always attend. And if they don't... um i try to get a statement from them about what they'd like.
0: In the case of Chris Weathers, convicted of aggravated DUI in 2001 and referred to Taos County's first restorative justice circle, the family of the victim who died, 17-year-old Shori Gomez, did not participate. Weathers' own family and the other injured victim's family did, though, and the process went forward.
4: Did the experience change your use of alcohol?
0: I I don't drink at all.
3: Since that day to this, I don't use alcohol. Um, you know, I. I Any time anybody gets behind the wheel intoxicated, it's it's a roll of the dice. You know, it's yeah. it's a crapshoot, and uh, eventually, you're going to lose the game if 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 that's what you're doing.
4: Have you ever imagined or had dreams of facing the family of the young woman who died?
3: coming out of prison, I had nightmares for, um, pretty steady for about two years. Uh, I, I had to just warn my family members not to wake me up by touching me because I would come out of the bed swinging, um, nightmares of the wreck. And, uh, and a lot of times, you know, just nightmares of, of, um, yeah, facing, uh, the mother of this young girl that died, she, you know, I I was ordered, uh, you know, pretrial and on parole not to have any contact with her, and I've never tried to contact her. Um, you know, I just uh, I just pray, you know, in my own right that she's found healing. There's sort of a void there, you know, and I and I I know that may sound selfish on my part, but um, you know, I hope that they found healing and there's not. It's something more that could have been done there I, you know I, I caused harm that um, you can 't repair uh, there 's really nothing I can do to bring that other than trying to live my life as an example and and hopefully uh, you know, maybe deter somebody else from going down the same road that I did. It was a little bit different in you know in, uh, as far as the re- restorative justice process, but uh, I do believe that through the whole thing it 's given me. Um, the ability to sit here and and have this conversation with you today
4: tell us what happened in that circle so um uh, the, the the leader of that circle uh did a pre interview with you and um you accepted full accountability for what happened
3: yeah yeah i um <clears throat> i you know i never tried to shun uh responsibility for what i'd done um we uh we had the you know the preemptive circles in uh, w- amongst my own family and and uh he kind of laid down um the ground rules you know speak to each other with respect and wanted to make sure that I was in a place where I was gonna accept responsibility and and uh be present at the circle um you know whichever way that might have gone if if uh you know if um a victim's family is gonna be angry and and you know, need to vent that anger, then, uh, you know, an offender, somebody in that position needs to be able to sit there, and, and there's not really a response that needs to be given. But, but if that's what brings healing, then those things need to be able to be said. And um, I don't remember uh, real specifically what was said in, in that criminal circle. I remember um, the state police officer that actually arrested me was a classmate of mine. I graduated with him. My dad was a state police officer here in Taos from '69 uh, to '88. He was Taos County Sheriff and uh, served as chief of police at Taos Pueblo. So um, when I got in trouble, it hit headlines everywhere because the the press loves a good story, and a cop's son uh, convicted of vehicular homicide was a was a headline story. But uh, you know, I do remember um, victims' family you know telling me about uh the tears that that were cried and the hurt that was caused and um you know it was it was a long process of listening to that and and not being able to have an answer for that really hurt because you know there wasn't really anything i could say at that point in time that was going to make a difference but um
4: well how did you feel when you were when you were hearing the a victim's family the victim who was injured who was also there
3: uh i felt horrible Uh, You know, to come into a place as the, you know, the quote-unquote bad guy, to come in to sit in a a room as the person that caused harm, and to go face-to-face with people that you've directly hurt and people that you've indirectly hurt. Uh, Police officers are, you know, at the scenes of DUI crashes, and they're exposed to, uh, you know, traumatic injury night after night and unfortunately you know we have a here in New Mexico a high rate of of DUI related crashes and deaths and um it takes a toll on on law enforcement uh you know judges and and uh, district attorneys um are in constant uh contact with with victims and with people that are hurt by this and uh you know all these things being being faced with this and this person going uh, you know, there was another couple that were in a car next to where we crashed, and they had a young boy in the car who was traumatized because he saw the whole thing. And so, you know, just an eye-opener to going, this wasn't just a, a carload of, of young people that were, you know, too drunk to be on the road. It wasn't just, a, a you know, a two-car accident. This this crime affected a large number of people and and you know as a ripple effect, it affected the whole community. the whole town you know uh, was was in shock you know when we pick up our local newspaper and read about um, somebody you know wrecking driving drunk there's a feeling of uh, you know that we've been violated that it's not safe to be on the roads and so you know seeing that that large scale effect on people was was really uh was really heartbreaking to me and on the other side of that coin um you know with the uh with the other victim's family there was um they were very very open in their forgiveness um you know of me and and in talking to me and saying you know i hope that you can pick up the pieces and and live after this and there was there was and I, you know here i'm the person that caused this harm And these people are crying and and putting their arms around me by the time this thing was over. And um, a while ago, Rose mentioned uh, uh, something that that she thought was the heart of of restorative justice. And I've been in other circumstances where, uh, you know, um, a a parent's daughter was uh, accidentally run over by the boyfriend and— I sat in that restorative justice process uh, as as a community member, as a former offender. And today those parents, the young man that killed their daughter is like a son to them. They which I think is just incredible. You know, he comes and he eats dinner at their house and they support him. He's he's gone and done his time and he's out. And so I wonder without that restorative justice process, without the forgiveness, they don't always turn out like that. You know, victims don't always want to be a part of an offender's life but um the ones that do and and where there's support there i wonder what different path um you know that offender's life would have taken during and after a prison sentence had there not been just a reckoning and even if a victim you know family or a victim themselves doesn't want to have anything to do with an offender through the restorative justice process there is hope you know um when I sit in a circle now and I tell my story, I can look at somebody, you know, on the, uh, you know, on the beginning side of a multiple year prison term and go, "I've been where you are. I've done what, you know, what you're about to do, and uh, and y- you know, you can come out the other side and you can be a member of this of this town, you know. You don't have to feel like you're ostracized or 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 branded, and uh, you know, actually be a." a Contributor to, to our society and not and not somebody that's taking things away.
4: How long were you in prison?
3: I was um, actually in prison for less than a year. I was sentenced to six years, uh, four of which were suspended, and um, I had served uh, uh, you know probably about eight months in in county jail. So. You know, when I went into prison uh, with all the good time and everything, I think I was shipped out in February and um, home by November. So uh, that was a pretty, uh, you know, it was a pretty fortunate um, thing on my part. I I think that the judge, uh, you know, and that was another thing I was going to address. The judge was present, the judge that was going to sentence me was present in the circle. And I also, you know, I look back and I go, wow. Uh, there's, I see, you know, stories on the news where people are getting 10 and 12 years of, in prison time. That's the maximum sentence for, for the felony that I committed was 12 years in prison. And I wonder how much of, you know, um, just seeing accountability and, and, uh, remorse in that circle, how big of a part that played on that, on that judge. And there were other things, you know, that, that they talked about as far as doing community service when I came out and, um, and uh, paying restitution, um, you know, to the victim's families, which, which uh, I, you know, and I don't know if, if that, how, only the judge knows <laughs> how big of an effect that had on her, uh, you know, on her decision when she handed down a sentence.
0: Chris Weathers, who was convicted of aggravated DUI in Taos, New Mexico, in 2001. After serving eight months in prison, he was referred to a restorative justice healing circle, the first applied to a case in Taos County. Now he's active in ongoing restorative justice programs in Taos. We'll hear more from Rose Gordon, who works in the Taos Restorative Justice Program for Juveniles later in our program. Next, though, we'll go to Oakland, California, to see how a similar program seems to have had good results at a high school for at-risk youth, when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. You're tuned to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace, or how we can resolve conflicts we may have with others, or stories of peacemakers throughout history, the famous or not so famous, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. And you can hear and read more about all of the episodes in our series dating back to 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're spotlighting some of the not-so-famous peacemakers who are working around the world in the field of restorative justice, sometimes an alternative to the punitive justice system, which many believe to have serious limitations. Restorative justice usually uses a healing circle encounter that brings offenders face-to-face with victims and other affected parties in an effort to hold all involved more accountable both for what happened and for what kind of punishment or restoration needs to happen to bring healing to all and restore the injury to the community at large. Next, to West Oakland, California, to a restorative justice program, which, after one year of implementation at Cole Middle School and Ralph Bunch High School, dramatically reduced student suspensions and expulsions, and offered a path out of the cycle of violence for youngsters like Dion Young who spoke with our Carol boss about being bounced from one high school to West Oakland's Ralph Bunch High School, where the restorative justice program was being tried.
5: So my experience before arriving at Ralph Bunch was very, how can I say, was very dangerous, very dangerous. I was very into the streets a little too much. I was in, I was getting in a lot of trouble. I had went to jail and a whole lot of stuff. The reason why they sent me to Ralph Bunch was because I had got shot at at Oakland Tech. So it was like they didn't want me at their school no more, so they sent me there. I was low on credits. Then it was like when when they sent me there, it was like it was a whole new start. I knew I could just start everything over.
4: Okay, so you got shot at. What were some of the reasons that you were in jail?
5: I had got caught with a gun.
4: Okay. What was your attitude when you first arrived at Ralph Bunch?
5: Uh, My attitude was to do something with my life, not to just be like everybody else. It was like a new start. It was like I have to be somebody. You know, it's like I have to show people that was looking down on me like I'm real. I'm really smart and I could do a whole lot. I just got to put my mind to it.
0: Eric. Yes. The program is managed by Eric Butler who sat next to Dion in the studio. Can you describe the school for us?
2: Ralph Bunch is a continuation high school. And here in Oakland, it would almost be fair for me to say it's the place where, excuse me, the contemporary high school send the kids that they deem as problem kids. Um, It's a place where they send the throwaways. It's about 70% African-American and 30% Latino. We've been averaging about two hundred students a day every, or since I've been there.
4: And what did you what did you find when you arrived over a year ago?
2: The first thing that I realized was we have two security guards on campus, and um, it's not hard to notice that when the kids are entering into the school, they're being winded down um, like they're at the airport. And I thought about I put myself in in their shoes, and I and I thought that I probably would be aggravated. If I had to be frisked every day um, of of my school career, I noticed that the kids were aggravated. I noticed that they were angry. I noticed that the security um, didn't really care if they were angry and often responded. If you did what you were supposed to do at, at your old school, you wouldn't be here to to have to suffer through this. So they got that unwelcoming introduction every day. To the teachers, I think that they looked at me as a person that could possibly put out the fires when there is a fire. So if a kid acts up in my class, I can just send them to your class, and you can keep them there. And they just want the kid out, and they and they looked at me as a way to uh, put out some of those fires.
4: Well, what was the purpose of RJoy having a presence in in the Ralph Bunch High School?
2: Well, for us on, on the RJoy side. The purpose was to cut down suspensions and to see was there a way we can um, intervene without um, using suspensions as a method of discipline.
4: Well, it sounds like you had to work to change attitude, perhaps, among teachers, in addition to working in, in changing attitudes of students.
2: Absolutely. And, and in fact, the um, the job of of changing the attitudes of the teachers is or, or the adults that are that's on campus like the the most work that i do um it's really easy to have these conversations with the kids but when you're talking about restorative justice and changing the culture you're actually talking about taking away um the adult's perceived power and that's not a a comfortable thing to do
4: eric how did you start introducing the elements of restorative justice into ralph bunch
2: Well, the first thing that I had to do was um, I realized that um, it's a it's a huge disconnect between the kids and the adults. So the first thing I had to do was figure out a way to um, to build those relationships. So I kind of looked at what everybody else was doing to to build relationships. What what was nothing? And and I did the opposite, which was I actually went out there and tried to to build those relationships. I was stood outside. I said, good morning. Every day, asked them how they were doing and i was able to guide those conversations with um personal experiences of my own failures um times when when i didn't do the right thing and consequences that i had to face uh, an important an important piece of that is is forgiveness is is one of the elements that we had to talk about and first learning how to forgive yourself and learning how to forgive others having empathy and just really, um, having some emotional intelligence, being able to call out what emotion that you're feeling and explain why you're feeling that way. And, um, and that's the beginning to healing from those, um, emotional wounds is, is being able to identify what those, um, wounds are and talk about ways of, of, of healing those wounds.
4: Dion, what did you think of? This guy, Eric Butler, when you, when you started school there, talking about words such as forgiveness and um, his whole approach and restorative justice.
5: Definitely when he first came to the school, because it's like I was trying to do good, but I was still in the streets. And it was like forgiveness was not a word to me. So it's just like when I, when I first met him, I was a very angry person, but I didn't know why I was angry. Until he made me really think about it, you know, and I was found that I was angry at myself. Then I was taking it out on everybody else.
4: Why were you angry?
5: A lot of stuff was making me angry, and it's like to this day I can't all the way tell you why why I was angry or why am I angry. Because to this day I still have a lot of anger built in, and I still don't know why.
2: If 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 I can't. (laughs) i'm sorry but um their their anger has been normalized so um it's kind of almost like they're not feeling anger because they turn that anger into something else um most times they turn all of the other emotions into anger but when they're really feeling anger they they switch it off and they turn it into something um uh, they make it another emotion the
4: core of uh the restorative justice that you've introduced into the schools uh, is the circles. And if you can talk about uh, what happens in the circle, what is the circle experience?
2: Circle is is something um, indigenous culture has been doing since the beginning of time. Um, the idea is we sit in a circle where we all can see each other and um and 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 feel each other through um through this conversation we set up a space intentionally so we can um so we can have these really rich conversations and 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 the reason why circle is so so potent is because they don't we we don't get an opportunity to have these conversations in fact um something as simple as how are you doing today we usually say I'm doing all right. And it doesn't matter how we're doing. Um, Culturally, we've been conditioned not to share our our true feelings. But when when we're in circle, when you sit down in one of those chairs, you know why you're there. And you don't have to be afraid because everybody else in circle is there for the exact same reason you're there. And the most important thing is listening more than talking anyway. So you're being healed by... By by your peers experiences and and knowing that somebody somebody else feels your pain and and is going through similar situations um that's that that's really really healing
4: Dion, what was the circle like for you the first time?
5: It was very powerful because we had different races in the room, and it's like the way that bunch was set up it was set up in groups in like race groups or whatever. So it's just like the circle made unity within the school. We everybody made a friend that day, so it's just like it was it was very dope.
2: I re- I remember that circle um and one of the things that I saw um the Latino kids, they ate together and the black kids ate together. Not not but but they on lunch at lunchtime. <clears throat> and for me, it reminded me of the yard at a at a prison where where the latino um guys are in one area the black guys are in one area the different gangs are in different areas so in my building relationships with all of the kids I got a group of young men um together and asked them would they would they mind joining a circle and they didn't know that it was going to be a circle with all of these different cultures and um my idea was there may be a fight because we we're at a high school and it's and it's boys trying to trying to be men and trying to find themselves. So they may be a fight. Um something may happen. But I didn't want it to be because of race. So I wanted it to be because of some regular boy stuff. But it wasn't gonna be because we separate ourselves and we don't know each other. It's harder to fight people that you like. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um if I can if I can get them to talk about the things that they that they like and find out what commonalities they have. It's harder, it's harder to have fights that way.
4: Eric, let's talk about results. How do we know it's working? What improvements are we seeing?
2: Well, um there's there's some um, there's some positive results sitting right in your studio. Um, Dion came to Ralph Bunch um, with a zero point.
5: Like, zero
2: five, and <laughs> 0. like 0. 0.05, and he graduated with a four point.
5: Like a four point
2: A four point oh, um, and and Dion is Dion is not the exception. There are many four point students that came from. I mean, this is just the educational part of it. Another way to prove that this method works is um, at Ralph Bunch. We went down in suspensions 85%. And we even went down 80% in offendable offenses. So not only did we not suspend kids for frivolous reasons, kids stopped doing um, things that would uh, cause them to get suspended.
4: You told me in a prior conversation, Eric, that there are no, zero fights at Ralph Bunch.
2: Right. It's been situation where there's almost been fights. Nope, no, no, no fights. In fact, I, I have kids um, really, really angry sometimes coming to me saying, hey, we have to have this conversation before I end up doing something that I don't want to do. So, and, and that's how they bring it. Um, and if they bring it to the table like that, that's fine. As long as they're bringing it to the table. Um, a lot of times they realize that fighting is not really necessary. And in most cases, they don't even want to fight what they really want is everybody to know that I will fight if I have to. So once we take that away, once we take the, the the fact that you have to, once we take that away, now we can talk about, um, next steps and what can we put in between the fight? Um, if we're going to take away the fight, we have to put something else there. So what can we put there, um, to, to deal with that aggression? And we put these conversations there. And I've heard from more than enough students that it's much harder to have these conversations than it is to um, fight in the streets.
5: And Mm -hmm. it's like everybody growing up to it's like everybody at that stage where they're willing to talk it out because it's like if you're going to fight, you got to worry about that. If you beat up that person, you got to worry about that person coming with a gun because that's just how the state of mind of kids are nowadays. They... They they want to fight, but it's just like they always got that friend peer pressure them to do something they don't want to do after that fight.
0: Dion Young, who went from the bottom of his class to valedictorian during his tenure at Ralph Bunch High School in West Oakland, California, in part thanks to restorative justice work done by the school's Eric Butler. We'll have more from both of them when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break. Paul Ingalls, producer for Peace Talks Radio. And that's what you're listening to right now, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and online at peacetalksradio.com. That's PeaceTalksRadio.com. Today our focus is on restorative justice programs being applied to a couple of communities, Taos, New Mexico, and we'll hear more from Rose Gordon about that program in a few moments and West Oakland, California, where Eric Butler manages a restorative justice program at Ralph Bunch High School. Dion Young is a recent graduate of Ralph Bunch High School who benefited from the program that brings offenders, victims, family members, and other stakeholders into talking, healing circles that identify the hurt and harm done by offenders' behavior and allows the group to help work out appropriate justice and restitution. Both Dion Young and Eric Butler are in a West Oakland studio talking over the line to our Carol Boss.
4: Your organization, Our Joy, which is Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth, if you could tell us um, a little bit about Afanya Davis, who's the founder and director, and actually what were were her intentions in starting this organization?
2: Well, from listening to Ms. Davis talk and, um, of of course, being uh, one of her employees, um, I've heard her a lot of times say that looking at the overall problem we realize that in the schools in Oakland um african american students are disproportionately suspended and it's a direct contrast to the fact that they're they're going right into the prison system and statistically um those numbers show that They're in the prison system because of the things that happen in in their um, high schools. Now, what's happening in the high schools is they're getting and and elementary schools and middle schools. They're being suspended for something called um, willful disobedience. And what that is, is basically anything that you do that gets on my nerves. I can suspend you for it. Um, And that makes up for about 70 percent of the suspensions. A kid gets suspended once. And um, they don't really have a family to go back home to. They usually end up in the street. And that adds on to the, um, the violence problem. That adds to the, to the drug problem. So Ms. Davis' idea was if we can keep kids in the schools, we can get them graduated.
4: What does restorative justice offer that Fanya and Arjoy understands to be promising for the youth of Oakland?
2: Our kids are missing out on those intentional conversations. Our joy um, makes those conversations happen. We offer a, a safe space to be able to have those talks that they never get an opportunity to talk about.
4: Define what an intentional conversation is.
2: If you see our kids walking down the streets... People are afraid of our kids and 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 even people that look exactly like our kids are afraid of our kids. And there's many reasons why the media plays a big part of that. But that being said, they're usually not having conversations with with adults that mean anything. The only thing the only time adults are talking to them is when they're disciplining them or when they're giving them instructions. They're never asking them, how's your day? And it's almost like um, they're dehumanizing them. They go into this place that kind of looks like a penitentiary, and I'm talking about school, and um, the, the only time the um, instructor talks to the kid is when they're instructing. So um, the kid doesn't get an opportunity to to share his feelings or talk about things that are really important and talk about what happened last night, and a lot of times what happened last night is some stuff that carried on to the morning, and it and it affects his life. And I'll give you an example. The um, last year, well, year before last, I had a student who um, he came to school every day and put his head on the desk was like the first thing that he did. And and he would usually fall asleep in first period. Um, The first day he was completely ignored um, and almost went unnoticed. Um, The second day, the teacher noticed it and kind of felt she was being disrespected. Um, but nevertheless, she kind of ignored it the third day though she um she nudged him and asked him to wake up and um he woke up for a minute and then fell back to sleep and she really felt disrespected at this point, so she kind of nudged at him again and in a more uh authoritarian um fashion, she asked him to wake up and when he got up, he started to to cuss at her and and kind of looked like he went crazy he he uh Walked out of the, stormed out of the classroom cussing and he was really angry and they were going to suspend him. Um, I asked for permission to, to have a conversation with him, but at this point he was mad at everybody. So he wasn't going to talk to me either. So eventually he came around and he started to t- open up and tell me what was going on with him. And the thing was, he was, um, his mother had relapsed and she hadn't been home in a couple of days. So he had been waking up early in the morning to bring his brothers and sisters to school and then going to school himself after not eating breakfast and, and, and not getting enough sleep at night. He was really tired in the morning. So I was able to give this information to the principal who at first was going to suspend the kid. And um, the principal said to me that we were we were going to suspend this kid. But after hearing the struggles that he went through, even on his way to school, um, this kid should probably be getting an award instead of being suspended. And, and and those are the intentional conversations that our kids are missing out on. And because they're missing out on those intentional conversations, they're missing out on resources that are right at their disposal.
4: Eric, can you share with us uh, uh, an experience that happened in Circle that was uh, very meaningful and, and particularly powerful mm. For you to be part of?
2: One circle in particular that comes to mind when you ask that question is um, about two years ago, my sister was murdered. And um, and in the shock of it all, I went to I still went to work that day. And and I got to work and and I shared with um, some colleagues of mine that this tragic thing had happened and everybody wanted me to go home. And I and I just felt like home wasn't gonna be a good place for me at that moment, so um, my idea was I wanted to have a circle with the girls about teen dating violence because my sister was murdered by her boyfriend, and in that circle, I passed out the uh the newspaper article that talked about um the incident and i didn't i didn't tell him anything I just told him that I want y'all to read this article. I realized during that circle that if I made it personal, we can get a lot of things accomplished within this topic. So after they read this, um, this article, I asked them, what was their thoughts and their feelings about it? And they were kind of, kind of matter of fact, this happens all the time. I'm not very surprised. Uh, um, who nobody else cares? Why should I care? But when I told them that that was my sister and this, this thing happened this morning, um, it took a completely different feel so because it was personal to them now and somebody that they care about is going through this thing so now they were able to um to connect that conversation to the emotions that they were feeling about that conversation does that make sense yes 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 i contemplated revenge and in that circle i was able to not want revenge, or um, or understand that revenge wasn't going to help in this situation. Through talking to those 11th um, and twelfth grade girls, I was able to understand that to get revenge would mean that I wasn't modeling the behavior that I expected out of them. So, and 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 we all started to cry. They they all supported me. Um, I had always told them that. The, I get more out of these circles than than you guys do, um but at that moment, they were able to see how much I got out of the circle um They were the main support in my healing process, and that was really, really powerful for them. It changed some of them lives where they wanted to do the same kind of work, so that was that was really, really touching
4: in your classroom, you had a group of high school students. Talking about imagining peace in Oakland, california
2: mm-hmm. for for me, the premise was like i like I said earlier, I realized that they 've lost their ability to dream, so I wanted them to dream i didn 't want them to to think of anything that made sense I wanted it to to not make sense, so when we talked about um that uh, peaceful Oakland, the premise was it's 2025. And there's all there's already peace in Oakland. There's um there's flowers everywhere and and um and everybody's happy. Um what does that my question was, what does that look like? And how do we get from here to there? And um we broke it down into groups like how do we get there economically? How did we get there spiritually? How do we get there socially? Um educational um, how do how do we get there in, in under all of these categories? So um, that opened up their uh, their um, their dream thing, because I wanted them to I wanted them to come up with unrealistic possibilities. And through coming up with those unrealistic possibilities, they came with some realistic stuff to try and love everybody that you meet and, and raise your kids to be um to be good citizens, and and all of the stuff that they came up with was possible. So when they saw that it was possible, they now know that it doesn't have to be the way everybody stereotypes Oakland to be, um, one of the worst places to live in America. Um, It can be a place of peace because we hold that within ourselves, and I think that's the lesson that they learned, or we learned, I'm sorry.
4: Dion, were you part of that and trying to um, imagine peace?
5: Yeah, I definitely was part of that.
4: What, what was it like for you to imagine peace in contrast to your life growing up in Oakland?
5: I don't know. That was very hard thing to imagine because out of all the killings, out of all the things you see day to day in Oakland, it's like, this ain't going to never happen.
4: Do you think it can happen now?
5: No. Why? Because everybody's dying. Like... It's like my generation. My generation is through. They don't know what to do with themselves. Like all they know is get high off a drug and kill people. So it's just like I don't never see this happening. Like and even the generation, even the generation behind me and that's coming up and stuff, they're getting high and doing the same thing that. They see that they older brothers, older cousins doing and they wanna do it. They wanna get names for themselves out here. Ain't no talking and all that unless somebody very powerful within I don't know, somebody very powerful come with I say a good ideology or something that could bring the youth together, then we have a possibility that there might be peace. But other than that, I don't never see it happening.
4: So, Eric. Yes. With us listening, and you too, to Dion's response, mm-hmm. is the exercise working? Can any of the youth
2: imagine peace? Oh, um, not well. Imagining peace and um, being realistic about it is two completely different things. Now we imagine peace, um, and Dion's one person with, with with his own opinion, and Dion's opinion is. It's it's it'll be hard, and it's a very it's an intelligent um, response. Um, Personally, I think that we will end up a peaceful Oakland. I think that it takes more people like Dion that's not afraid to say that to say on the radio that I don't think that we can do it, and then grow up a little bit and learn some more and um, keep working toward making a peaceful Oakland. Um, so I can guarantee you that Dion is working toward making his portion of Oakland a peaceful Oakland, but he's not that confident in everybody else. I just happen to be confident in everybody else because I've I've got the experience um, of seeing it work in different parts. Um, Dion haven't seen the things that I've seen, so... I think that we will eventually have a peaceful Oakland and a peaceful
0: world. Yeah, it's
5: possible. Everything is possible.
0: Former Ralph Bunch High School student Dion Young from West Oakland, California, says he isn't sure what he wants to do next after graduating from school with a 4.0 and being named the class valedictorian. Young participated in the Our Joy program, restorative justice for Oakland youth, managed at the high school by Eric Butler, who we also heard from. Back now to a little bit more from Rose Gordon, who runs a similar restorative justice program for juvenile offenders in Taos County, New Mexico. So far in our program, we've heard about these restorative circles, but none of the examples among our guests had victims participate in the healing conversations. In some crimes, it's not always easy to get victims to participate, although sometimes they do. Sometimes establishing who the victim really is is a challenge. Rose Gordon has an interesting example, though.
1: So here were three boys that um, were hanging out together, and from what they told me, they had nothing else to do. <laughs> and they decided to go by the schoolyard and break into the school, which they did in a quite sophisticated manner. They used, um, they found sticks around the outside of the building to break the windows. Um, they went in and did damage to classrooms. Um, and somehow the word got out in the school about who had done it. We're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars of damage. And what was really um, touching and interesting to me is the person that we got to represent the school was not just an administrator, but we had the custodian, and the custodian knew these boys from the time they were little, And he not only knew them, but he had to clean up the mess when they were done. And so what he related to them seemed to have a deeper impact on them than um, what they would have heard from the school administrator, because this is someone that they had confided in um, during their youth in the schoolyard. This was somebody who always cared about them and said hello every day and was cheerful and respectful and welcomed them. And when he told them how terrible he felt to see the school that he had worked in for three decades destroyed in this way by young men that he really liked, that struck home for them. And to me, that's the epitome of restorative justice is when you have someone in the circle who can speak to the young person's heart. The numbers, the fact that their parents have to pay these thousands of dollars, that's all bad enough. But you really need somebody there who can touch the young person's heart. And in this circle, that happened.
0: Rose Gordon is a restorative justice facilitator for juveniles in Taos County. For more about our guests and restorative justice, the partial transcript of this show, and more, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. There's also a link to an in-depth series of interviews with experts on restorative justice from Molly Rowan Leach called Restorative Justice on the Rise. You can find the link on our website. That's peacetalksradio.com to hear this program again, as well as all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can catch our email address there, too, and we'd love to hear your feedback on our shows stories about how the programs helped you with some aspect of conflict resolution, or ideas for new programs. You can order CDs, sign up for a free podcast and newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep Peace Talks Radio on the air. We have our own nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, that works apart from the station you're hearing the show on now, and any donation really helps. Find out more at peacetalksradio.com. Support for the program also comes from the Paul Bartlett Ray Peace Prize, the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Good Radio Show's executive director is Nola Daves-Moses. Allie Adelman composed and performed our theme music. For Carol Wass, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.